Hello and welcome. You're listening to Nostalgia Death Trip 2000. And today I will be talking about uh, Alexandra Aja's 2006 film, The Hills Have Eyes. In 1953, one family survived a nuclear explosion. The government abandoned them. The testing changed them. But what didn't kill them only made them deadlier. Where's Mama? Mister, would you play with us? The Hills Have Eyes. Theaters March 10th. Rated R. So The Hills Have Eyes uh, is a remake of Wes Craven's 1977 film of the same name. Of course, Wes Craven, you know, one of the greatest horror directors of all time. You know, he's the guy who made A Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream and all that. Uh, But The Hills Have Eyes is one of his earlier films, and it's a great one. Uh, It's got that great uh, grubby 16-millimeter grindhouse look. And uh, a a guy named Robert A. Burns was uh, the art director for the 1977 version of The Hills Have Eyes. And he was notably also the art director for Toby Hooper's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So The Hills Have Eyes and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre are, uh, they're a good double feature. You know, they they share a lot of DNA and both are about, uh, you know, good, decent white Americans uh, getting eviscerated by cannibal freakazoids in the godforsaken southwestern United States. Uh, you know, The Hills Have Eyes is not quite the uh, sublime, visionary, avant-garde masterpiece that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is. But, uh, you know, it's brutish and sleazy and effective, uh, like any good, sturdy, grindhouse movie. But, uh, you know, we're not here to talk about that. We're, we're talking about the remake, uh, directed by Alexandra Aja. So... Alexandra Aja is a French filmmaker, which is why I'm pronouncing his name weird. And uh, he kind of came on to the horror scene with this movie uh, Haute Tension, uh, or High Tension, in 2003. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a crossover hit from what's come to be known as the New French Extremity, which was a term to describe these like loosely related transgressive French art house films um, and you know they're perverted and fucked up and extreme uh, a, a lot of the better ones of course don't really get uh, too much play in America but uh, based on the Wikipedia list of uh, notable new French extremity movies uh, I would recommend uh, see the sea by uh, Francois Ozon, uh, Sombra by Philip uh, Grandieu, uh, Trouble Every Day by Claire Denis, and uh, Fat Girl by Catherine Briot. Uh, Fat Girl has one of the craziest endings of uh, any movie I've ever seen. So, uh, you know, total masterpiece. But uh, anyway, High Tension. Uh, I remember back in the early 2000s, people were really into high tension. And I saw it, but it didn't leave a huge impression on me, uh, except for the fact that in the American trailer for High Tension, they play the Sonic Youth cover of the Carpenters song Superstar, 
and I had uh, never heard Sonic Youth before. But I was, at that time, a very big fan of the Carpenters. And, uh, you know, it's a great cover, uh, a really early example of using a kind of uh, creepily, you know, creepy version of an upbeat pop song. And, you know, now that's done in every movie trailer. But, uh, you know, so that was memorable. And, uh, you know, Alexandra Aja's next movie after High Tension was The Hills Have Eyes. He was immediately kicked up to uh, the big leagues of uh, Hollywood remakes. And in fact, Wes Craven specifically chose Alexandra Aja to do the remake because he was very impressed by High Tension. So, you know, the remake has Wes Craven's blessing. Uh, but, you know, he has made some dubious choices in his career as well. And, uh, you know, some people really love Alexandra Aja. Uh, he's made himself a, uh, you know, nice little career of like gory B horror movies like uh, like this movie Mirrors, which is about killer mirrors, and uh, the 3D remake of Piranha, which was called Piranha 3D, and uh, Crawl, which is like a uh, killer alligator movie or something. I, I actually didn't see it. And uh, Oxygen, which I also didn't see, but it's about running out of oxygen, I think. But to my understanding, he's doing good, gruesome, you know, unpretentious work and I suppose that that is something to celebrate against the uh, Robert Eggers and Ari Osters of the world. Um, as for the cast, I really have to say that I don't have much to say about them. I mean, everyone's good. Nobody, nobody really notable in my world, uh, except for maybe Vanessa Shaw, who plays Lynn Carter in the movie. She was in Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. She played the prostitute that Tom Cruise almost sleeps with, uh, but then for some reason he doesn't. And then later on, uh, he finds out that she had AIDS. So, you know, she's in this movie. And uh, also also Billy Drago. He plays one of the mutants, and he is in an episode of the Masters of Horror series that was on Showtime. He's in this episode titled Imprint, that's directed by the Japanese director Takashi Miike, you know, who made like Ichi the Killer and Audition. And uh, if you haven't seen Imprint, uh, you really should. So getting into the movie, uh, it begins with a title card that reads, between 1945 and 1962, the United States conducted 331 atmospheric nuclear tests. Today, the government still denies the genetic effects caused by the radioactive fallout. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, then we cut to a river running through a rocky desert landscape, which uh, on-screen text notifies us is the New Mexico desert. And we got guys in biohazard suits with Geiger counters, and they're collecting fish from the river, You know, presumably studying the genetic effects mentioned in the title card. Uh, when suddenly a bloodied man runs up to them and asks for help, and suddenly, boom, one of the guys in the biohazard suits gets a pickaxe uh, through the head, and the point comes out of the visor. Uh, then we see uh, all the guys in suits you know, getting hacked up by some uh, vaguely glimpsed assailant, and then we see a pickup truck dragging all the corpses by chains. So, you know, pretty good start. Uh, then we get the opening credits, which is like a montage of you know, atomic test footage, uh, you know, mushroom clouds and the, and the model houses they built for the testing getting blown away. And it's all intercut 
with horrific deformed mutant faces and uh, an old timey country song is ironically playing over it. Um, for whatever reason, when I was a kid, I was really obsessed with nuclear bomb test footage. I was really obsessed with the image of the mushroom cloud. And also I was really obsessed with tornadoes. And, you know, looking back, uh, two pretty notably phallic images of destructive power. Uh, I don't know what that was about. Uh, I'm a perfectly normal and well-adjusted adult. Anyway, after the credits, uh, you know, we open on a desolate gas station and we see a sign that says, no trespassing United States Department of Energy. So pretty ominous. And we see a classic old man gas station attendant in a greasy mechanic jumpsuit and uh, he's stalking around the gas station with a shotgun. And, uh, you know, suddenly he sees an empty duffel bag on his porch. And he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. I told you I'm out. Uh, but we see from a, from a POV shot that someone is watching and making weird breathing noises. So the gas station attendant takes the duffel bag inside. And in the bag, we see it's full of jewelry and like purses with family photos and there's a, a styrofoam container with a severed ear. And uh, that's when a family shows up to the gas station in a pickup truck uh, pulling a classic Airstream trailer. And a very prominent miniature American flag is waving. Um, so we learn this is the Carter family. And uh, there are a lot of them. There's the parents, uh, Big Bob Carter and his wife Ethel. Their teenage kids, Bobby and Brenda. Their adult daughter, Lynn who's married to a guy named Doug Bukowski. And uh, Lynn and Doug have an infant daughter named Catherine. Uh, and they've also got two German shepherds named Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it's kind of a lot of characters, but as you'll see, their numbers will be thinning very soon. Uh, you know, probably the most notable dynamic in the family is the, like, rivalry between Big Bob Carter, the patriarch of the family, and his son-in-law, Doug. Uh, you know, Bob is bald with a mustache, kind of like the classic American patriarch. He's very impatient and rude. And he appears to have very little respect for Doug, who has uh, glasses and long hair. And he's kind of like a, a soy beta male. He's constantly fussing about not having cell phone service. Uh, and we later learn he actually runs a cell phone store. So, uh, you know, Bob thinks he's he's kind of a wimp. And, you uh, you know, I just want to note that it, it was a much healthier time culturally when being associated with cell phones and being like obsessed with your cell phone signal uh, labeled you a kind of dork loser who was not worthy of respect. Anyway, so they're at this gas station and they're getting gas and the gas station attendant who we understand has some kind of underhanded dealings going on with some uh, unseen entity suspiciously suggests to Bob that they take a shortcut through the hills uh, you know, so they take the shortcut that leads them through the middle of nowhere. Uh, the family is getting kind of fed up and Bob is like, the road is here. It exists. It's got to go somewhere. So that's just like true American optimism. You know, we must be going somewhere. And it's like, oh, you're going somewhere. Uh, anyway, at this point, they mentioned that Bob's wife used to be a little hippie chick. And it's just like, exactly. This is exactly where the hippies wound up. You know, bedfellows with the most like, Typical, conventional, conservative, white, American fascist types. Uh, uh, a point that is well addressed in uh, Thomas Pinchon's novels, Vineland and Inherent Vice. I mean, the hippies just couldn't resist. Anyway, meanwhile, 
Doug is is hanging with uh, Bob's teenage son, Bobby, in the Airstream, and Doug is smoking a cigarette, and Bobby's like, won't my sister and my dad get mad at you for smoking? And Doug is like, fuck your sister and fuck your dad. <laughs> so, you know, he's like, he's a soy beta male, but he's still got a bit of an edge. And, you know, they're they're hanging out and they're listening to new metal together. Anyway, suddenly the family's truck hits a spike strip in the road and the tires pop and the truck skids out and crashes into a rock. You know, everybody spills out of the car and, uh, you know, it's just chaos. They're like, oh oh, no, is the baby okay? And, you know, both dogs like run off and this this caravan of white middle-class Americans has been derailed and they're now subject to, you know, whatever anarchic forces await them in the desert. So, of course, they put on California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas and the teenage daughter is suntanning and Bob gives his teenage son a handgun and he's like, you know, doesn't give Doug a gun and he's like, Doug is a Democrat. He doesn't believe in guns. So, you know, it's just an amazing image of their total obliviousness and complacency. So they come up with a plan and Bob is going to walk back to the gas station and Doug is going to go down the opposite way, you know, down the road. And, you know, of course, Doug is further emasculated by his wife who makes him wear like a a silly bucket hat because of the sun. And the mom is like, let's pray before you go. And and they all get into a prayer huddle and we see them from like a distant vantage point, you know, presumably from the hills that surround them. And they're being watched through binoculars and uh, we hear weird growling. Uh, So the men are off. And the women and the teenage boy Bobby are just like hanging out and goofing around. And, you know, Lynn is breastfeeding the baby. And, you know, they're just like, you know, one of them's like, I want a margarita. And the other one's like, I want a massage. And, you know, the mom's talking about how she's scared of rattlesnakes. And Bobby is like, you know what Freud would have said about that. And, you know, meanwhile, the dogs are just going absolutely insane barking. (laughs) And uh, one of them runs off. So Bobby chases after the dog and goes into like this rocky canyon and he finds a trail of blood and, you know, the dog is dead. It's been disemboweled and he gets spooked and and runs off and trips and falls and knocks himself unconscious. And that's when like a little mutant girl comes over and is like caressing his face while uh, another mutant in a uh, bowler hat is uh, squatting above them on a cliff and he's like, chomping on the dog's leg like it's a turkey leg and the blood is dripping onto Bobby's face as he lies there unconscious. Uh, You know, meanwhile, Doug is wandering through the desert and comes to like a a crater that's filled with old abandoned cars and, you know, the camera pulls out and we see this is one of several massive craters presumably left by atomic testing. Anyway, night falls and, uh, you know, Bob is just arriving at the gas station and the attendant is nowhere in sight. So he takes out his magnum and he starts, you know, exploring. And, uh, you know, he sees newspaper clippings pinned to the wall with headlines about miners who refuse to give up their land after, you know, nuclear testing. And there's pictures of mutated babies. And one of the pictures is of the mutant girl we saw earlier with Bobby. Uh, and Bob, you know, being a crude and incurious man, just goes... <laughs> weird son of a bitch. So Bob is about to just take off with the gas attendant's, uh, gas station attendant's car uh, when he notices boots sticking out of an outhouse. And, uh, you know, the gas station attendant is in there and he's like drunk or something and he's distraught. He's muttering to himself like, they grew up in the mines like wild children. What kind of place is that? And then he just takes a shotgun and blows his head off. (laughs) And it's like very graphic. 
And that's when suddenly a scary voice starts calling, Daddy, from the darkness. And Bob is like firing into the dark and he jumps into the car, but somebody is already sitting in the back seat and they just bust his head against the windshield and his head is all bloody. And then, you know, the next thing we know, Bob is on a flatbed cart and he's being taken into the mines. Meanwhile, Doug comes back with like a bunch of junk from the crater of, uh, you know, junked cars. He has like a baseball bat and a fishing rod and a teddy bear. And, you know, it's really highlighting his like uselessness and softness. And uh, the teenage son, Bobby, who saw the dead dog and got knocked out, um, he's back and he's kind of spooked, you know, because of the dog. But he doesn't say anything to his family, uh, you know, who all continue to be blissfully ignorant and everyone beds down for the night. And this is when we see the uh, teenage daughter, Brenda, is sleeping with her classic white iPod headphones in. And, uh, you know, someone turns the light on and a gnarled mutant hand starts caressing her face. And we see the face of the guy whose hand it is. And he is a real mutant. He's got a... uh, like bulbous head and missing teeth. And uh, she wakes up and she's about to scream, but the mutant puts his hand over her mouth. So, uh, you know, meanwhile, Bobby, you know, he finally snaps and tells Doug and Lynn that, uh, you know, one of their dogs is dead and he thinks there's people living in the hills. And just as everyone is like becoming aware of what's going on, we see uh, the mutant with the bulbous head and he goes now over a walkie talkie and the camera flies across the desert to a tree in the distance and uh, Bob is tied to the tree and then it just explodes into fire. So like Bob's on fire and he starts screaming and everyone runs over to the burning tree, leaving Brenda alone in the trailer with the bulbous headed mutant. And then another mutant shows up and this one has like a hair lip and he goes in the trailer. And uh, so, you know, Brenda and the baby, you know, remember the baby, uh, they're trapped in the trailer with the mutants and, you know, the bulbous headed mutant is like molesting Brenda and the hair-lipped mutant is just like raiding their pantry and, and wearing an apron. And uh, they, they have parakeets. I forgot to mention the parakeets. Uh, they have parakeets. And the hair-lipped mutant bites one of the parakeets' heads off and then like squirts the blood all over his face. Uh, so while this is going on, the rest of the family is just watching Bob get burned alive while he's tied to this tree. And, uh, you know, Doug manages to put out the fire, but, you know, it's too, too late. Bob is already burned to death. And his wife is just snapped and she's going, it's not my Bob. It's not my Bob. You know, like she just can't believe it. Um, At this point, back in the trailer, the hair-lipped mutant pulls the bulbous headed mutant off of Brenda. And he's like, you don't know what you're doing. And then he starts raping her. And the uh, bulbous headed mutant is like throwing a tantrum and trashing the trailer. And he kills the other parakeet. Uh, And that's when he discovers the baby. Uh, and, uh, just then Lynn rushes in and the hair lip mutant is holding the baby and he's just like, you're fat and juicy <laughs> and Lynn hits him with a frying pan and they struggle. But, uh, you know, the hair lip mutant pulls out a gun and he pulls it at the, he points it at the baby. And so, you know, like Lynn relents and the mutant starts like caressing her and licking her and he rips her shirt open and, um, uh, you know, it's strongly implied he starts sucking on her breasts, you know, like like drinking her breast milk, all while he's got a gun pointed at the baby. So, you know, it's pretty sordid stuff. Uh, but then Ethel comes from the trailer, and she tries to get the drop on the mutant while he's, um, you know, sucking uh, her daughter's breasts. Uh, but he blows her away with the gun, and then he un- aims the gun at Brenda, 
but uh, you know, Lynn stabs him in the leg with a screwdriver, and uh, he shoots Lynn in the head. And at this point, Doug and Bobby arrive on the scene, and the two mutants run off into the night with the baby, and they notably grab the miniature American flag off the truck as they go. So it's really quite the scene. So you know, now it's the aftermath. Doug goes in the trailer and sees Lynn's dead body, and he starts crying. And Ethel, the mother, is like bleeding out, and she's like, "I." I just cleaned this trailer and she's like, I'm cold. <laughs> and Doug puts a blanket over her and she dies. So, you know, now just to keep track, Lynn is dead. Bob is dead. Ethel is dead. Brenda, uh, having been raped and Bobby having seen his father burned alive are traumatized and the baby is gone. So at this point we see another mutant, uh, and it's the one with the bowler hat that was eating the dog leg before. And he's like surveilling the family campsite through binoculars and he's got just like slits for a nose. And, uh, you know, suddenly the family's other German shepherd shows up and bites his throat out. So, you know, I guess they had to do this just so, you know, the scene is not so much of a downer. Um, you know, back in the trailer, Bobby is like, let's go out and kill him. And Doug is like, we need to think, we need a plan. And Bobby's like, you're a pussy, just like my dad said. So, you know, what with, you know, the rape and the kidnapping the baby, the uh, already tenuous sense of masculine authority and control is, uh, you know, really in danger now. And things are descending into chaos. And, uh, you know, that's when they hear like a uh, radio voice crackling outside the trailer. And they realize it's coming from a walkie talkie that's held by a severed arm. And, uh, you know, they don't explain this, but presumably it's the severed arm of the mutant with the bowler hat which we can imagine the dog brought back to the camp after killing him. So the voice on the walkie-talkie is like, you know, you've got to kill them all. And Doug picks up the walkie-talkie and he's like, what do you want from us? Give me back my little girl. And uh, then he just hears the baby crying on the walkie-talkie. And that's when Doug is like, Bobby, how many bullets do you have left? You know, it's like, let's fucking go. So next scene, it's sunrise. It's a new day. And Doug is uh, setting off with the dog and the baseball bat into the hills and into an abandoned mine shaft. Uh, and he's presumably going to get his revenge and rescue his baby girl. So he's following a trail of blood in the mine shaft and he comes across kind of like makeshift cemetery where the pickaxes are used as grave markers. And, um, you know, presumably this is where some of the miners who, as we learned, refused to vacate their land, uh, you know, probably wound up. And uh, Doug passes through the mine and he sees a town in the distance. So Doug walks in the town, and it's all like abandoned and full of like decrepit mannequins and 1950s garb. And uh, we are to understand that this is one of the model towns that was uh, built for nuclear testing. So there's like creepy burnt mannequins everywhere. There's like mannequins of little kids laying in front of a 50s television set. And there's like mannequins swinging on a swing set, you know, uh, very creepy. And, uh, you know, Doug sees his baby in one of the houses and, uh, you know, he sees another mutant. Then, uh, this is a new mutant. He's got like a bloody face and his head is in a metal brace and he's got a shotgun and he's dragging a dead body by a rope. So, uh, you know, Doug like sneaks by him and gets into the house and there's a, uh, fat bald mutant combing a wig and sitting in a rocking chair watching divorce court on TV and, uh, you know, Doug tries to sneak the baby out of the house, but the bald mutant gets the drop on Doug and knocks him out. Uh, meanwhile, Bobby and his sister Brenda are still at the trailer, and Bobby has run fishing line around the perimeter of the camp as tripwire. So, like, 
if someone approaches a stuffed animal will bob up and down or whatever and uh, you know they take the corpses of their sister and mother and uh, put them in the back of the truck then we cut back to Doug and he's waking up in an ice box full of uh, dismembered torsos and severed limbs so of course you know he starts freaking out and he manages to bust the lid open and now he's like creeping through the house with a baseball bat and there's like a creepy dining room that again has like mannequins all around the dinner table but there's also a uh, dead mutant seated at the table and uh, the mutant has the miniature American flag from before sticking out of his head and you know as Doug kind of moves through the house we hear like a creepy voice singing the Star Spangled Banner and we see that it is a mutant in a wheelchair and he has an enormous like engorged head that's like hanging off the back of the chair. He kind of looks like Rubber Johnny, if you're familiar with Rubber Johnny. So uh, he starts talking to Doug and he's like, your people asked our families to leave our town and you destroyed our homes. So we went into the mines and you set off your bombs and turned everything to ashes and you made us what we've become. <laughs> and then he starts like maniacally laughing and Doug is like, what's so funny? And the mutant goes, it's breakfast time. <laughs> At which point, the original bulbous-headed mutant bursts into the house with an axe and tries to hack up Doug. But, uh, you know, the dog shows up again and bites the mutant. And, you know, the mutant still manages to chop Doug's fingers off. And then it seems like Doug is done for. You know, he's on his knees. He's crying. He's like, please don't kill me. Uh, but then he stabs the mutant in the foot with a screwdriver then he runs over to the table, yanks the miniature American flag out of the uh, dead mutant's head, and then stabs the other mutant through the throat with it. And then he takes the axe and just like chops the mutant right in the head. And you know the music swells with like triumphant horns and cool distorted guitar. And Doug puts on his glasses and and then he runs out with the axe, quickly kills the other mutant with the head brace, and uh, then takes his shotgun and heads off. Meanwhile, the uh, you know rubber Johnny mutant uh, picks up his walkie-talkie and he's like kill the baby but right after he does that uh you know the dog sees him and uh mauls him to death so in one of the other model houses we see the hair-lipped mutant again and you know he's going to kill the baby with a butcher's knife uh but the little girl mutant from way before she's there and she's like protecting the baby so the hair-lipped mutant is about to like chop the baby up but it's been replaced with a pig and the little girl mutant has saved the baby and run off uh, meanwhile, back at the camp, Bobby and Brenda are there and, you know, something sets off the tripwire he set up. So they go to explore and it's just like a, like a tumbleweed stuck on the wire. But while they're gone, someone has gone and stolen the corpse of their mother. So Bobby follows a trail of blood and there's a new mutant. We haven't seen this one before. He's got like long hair and a trench coat. Uh, he actually looks pretty normal compared to the other mutants, but He's eating the mother's corpse. So I guess that makes up for his somewhat normal appearance as far as his uh, mutant credibility. Anyway, he starts chasing Bobby and uh, he runs back to the trailer where Brenda has turned on the, the, the gas of the stove and they like set up matches on the door. So, you know, if they if the mutant opens the door, the trailer will explode and they escape out the window and the mutant opens the door and the trailer explodes. Meanwhile, uh, Doug is chasing the little girl mutant up into the hills and he confronts her with a shotgun and she's like about to give the baby back. But then the hair lip mutant drops onto Doug out of nowhere and knocks him out. Uh, but as he's laying there like half conscious, he sees the wedding ring on his mangled hand, which inspires him to rally. 
and he gets like the shotgun back and shoots a hair lip mutant to death. And again, like triumphant music plays and we get the classic Western iconic hero image where Doug is shot from the waist up with like the blue sky above him. And uh, the little girl mutant returns the baby to Doug. But suddenly the uh, hair lip mutant is uh, somehow still alive. He stands up and he's about to shoot Doug. uh, But the little girl mutant tackles him off the cliff and they both die. Uh, Meanwhile, Brenda and Bobby are like stumbling through the burning wreckage of the trailer and they find the uh, badly burned body of the long-haired mutant, and his face is like all melted, <laughs> and he's laughing. And uh, you know, Brenda then runs over with a pickaxe and stabs it into his head. And uh, that's when Doug shows up with the baby and the dog, and you know what's left of the Carter family reunites, and they all embrace. And then uh, you know the camera pulls out again, and we're back in the like binocular view, implying that there are still eyes that the hills have that the hills still have eyes they continue to have eyes uh with which the family is still being hunted so then cut to black but then screen turns red and uh then we get a credit scroll over a red background so it's like blood and that's pretty cool and then there's like another ironic needle drop of an old country song so all the all the country music in the movie is uh, appropriate because, you know, The Hills Have Eyes is really ultimately a Western. And if you don't believe me, the movie does take place in the desert. So what else do you really need to know? But, you know, in a lot of ways, The Hills Have Eyes does possess many of the qualities that are typical of the Western. Uh, I was reading this book. I don't know if it's considered a, like, respectable film book. It certainly sounds like one. Uh, but I had just found it at a thrift store and it's called a certain tendency of the Hollywood cinema 1930 to 1980 by a Robert B. Ray. It's a very suggestive title. And as a fan of both the Hollywood cinema and certain tendencies, I uh, had to pick it up. But, uh, you know, the author talks a lot about Westerns and he describes Westerns as movies that, uh, quote, encourage active, pragmatic, empirical lifestyles at the expense of contemplative, aesthetic, theoretical ones. Uh, You could probably read that last part as uh, intellectual-slash-Jewish lifestyles. And uh, he concludes by saying that uh, by portraying the advancing society's abiding dependence on the frontier's most representative figure, the individualistic outlaw hero, the pure Western reassured its audience about the permanent availability of both sets of values. So basically, as I understand it, the idea is that in Westerns, you know, we need the outlaw hero to ensure the continuance of the values of civilized society. So, you know, we we counterintuitively need the outlaw to guarantee the law. And the idea is basically that, like, we can only enjoy the fruits of civilized society through... Uh, active, pragmatic, empirical lifestyles, which in Westerns almost always means some kind of violence. And uh, if you're old enough in 2006, uh, when The Hills Have Eyes came out, uh, you may recall that people were very fond of saying that freedom isn't free. But that's basically the ethos of the Western. You know, somebody has to pay for our freedom, and usually the people who pay are some, uh, you know, vaguely threatening, shadowy others that the outlaw hero does violence to in order to ensure our freedom to live our civilized lives lives whoops of a contemplative aesthetic theoretical podcasting 
so in the Hills Have Eyes, Doug is that outlaw hero. Uh, as a soy beta nerd, he is an unlikely outlaw hero, but outlaw heroes tend to be unlikely or reluctant. And, uh, you know, he, of course, ultimately rises to the occasion, brutally murders all the mutants, and saves the baby. He is the outlaw hero of this Western. Uh, as I mentioned, we even get the shot of him with, like, the big blue Western sky above him. So, uh, you know, through his acts of violence, he restores order. And, you know, at the end, the Carter family kind of reconstitutes itself around Doug. You know, both parents are dead. The eldest sister is dead. And now, presumably, Doug will take the other sister as his new wife. And the teenage son will become his son because, after all, he only has a daughter. And the fact that he only has a daughter is just one of the many ways in which he is constantly being emasculated in the movie. You know, like Big Bob doesn't give him a gun because he's a a Democrat or whatever. And, you know, that emasculation primes him for his uh, heroic return. Uh, Because as much as, you know, Big Bob at first seems to be in control and, you know, the total authority and everything, he pretty quickly, like immediately fails to protect his family. And that opens up a uh, wonderful opportunity for Doug to step up and uh, commit the acts of violence that Bob failed to do. I mean, you know, someone has to save the baby. So, you know, while Doug is the outlaw hero, uh, correspondingly, the mutant cannibals are the lawless savages that threaten civilization. Uh, It's kind of more obvious in the original Hills Have Eyes that the mutant cannibals are supposed to be like vaguely Native American. In the original, you see a lot more of the mutant society and they wear like beads and headdresses. But even without that, the fact that they're subhuman cannibals, I mean, that was always a big part of the like racist cultural image of the Native Americans, that they were subhuman cannibals. And, uh, you know, in 1977, when the tropes of the Western were maybe more prevalent, I think it would have been clear. So, uh, you know, how is this all updated for 2006? Uh, well, the mutants aren't wearing beads or headdresses. And I think it might have been too on the nose if they were like wearing, I don't know, like turbans and robes or something. But what they are shown to be doing is sitting at home and watching divorce court. You know, they're watching daytime TV and you can, you know, see that they're just basically poor people. I mean, who else sits at home and watches daytime TV? You know, people who don't have jobs. Uh, You know, I was pretty young in 2006, uh, but I do think that we were like a little less class conscious back then, you know, probably more united in our uh, xenophobic fear of terrorism and whatnot. But these days, you know, I think it is a pretty popular sentiment that uh, poor people exist and that we basically need to uh, exterminate them to ensure the continuance of our society. And if you don't believe that this is a popular sentiment, just go on Facebook, go to the page of whatever the local news station is in your nearest city, and just read the comments on any news story about like homelessness or shoplifting or drug use. Uh, You know, that kind of savagery is not okay. But the savagery to stop that kind of savagery, well, those people are heroes. So, you know, thinking about The Hills Have Eyes as a Western, uh, you know, like a lot of Westerns, the movie can be read as a classic tale of uh, regeneration through violence. Uh, Regeneration through violence is a phrase from uh, Richard Slotkin, who wrote a book called Regeneration Through Violence, the mythology of the American frontier, 1600 to 1860. And the basic idea is that the European colonists in the New World and, you know, later on the Manifest Destiny Western Expansionists, they needed the Native Americans to be the representation 
of a savage lawless culture that was totally antithetical to their own, you know, white Christian Anglo patriarchal uh, civilized culture. You know, obviously this was reductive. Uh, you know, things were a lot more complicated than that. But those differences were accentuated because, you know, they needed to exterminate them. You know, they needed their land, their resources. They needed their culture to go uncontested. Uh, but by exterminating them, they ran the risk of becoming savages themselves. So they needed to make the Native Americans the savages exclusively so that by exterminating them, they weren't being savage. They were simply eradicating savagery. So this moral justification for violence would actually strengthen their sense of civility. And it's that invigoration of both, you know, the moral values and the brutal power um, that is the regeneration through violence, to my understanding, at least. So on some level, you know, it's really just kind of scapegoating, just turning someone else into a receptacle for your own fears and denials. And that comes across very clearly in The Hills Have Eyes, because as the mutant with the uh, engorged head says, you know, you made us what we've become. You know, we made them savages so we could act savagely toward them in the name of eradicating savagery, you know, classic scam. And this is where the outlaw hero of the Western comes in. He safeguards civilization against savagery by being savage himself. So in this way, you know, the savage and the outlaw resemble each other, uh, you know, in their standing outside of civilization and in their acts of violence. And not only do they resemble each other, they are in fact dependent on each other. You know, someone first needs to be excluded from society in order for someone else to step out and uh, meet them on those terms. So Doug kills because he has to, you know, because he's made to by the circumstances. Uh, and in that way, the mutants make Doug what he becomes. But at the same time, that makes him like the mutants because someone else had made the mutants what they've become. So there's just like this like fractal chain of people turning each other into savages and becoming savages to kill the savages. And as far as I can tell, that's basically what civilization is. It's not that, you know, these savages were already there trying to undermine civilization. It's that the savages were created to justify the project of civilization. You know, we need the savages so we can know what civilization is, you know, by knowing what it's not. And of course, you know, the irony of the mutants as the locus of savagery in the movie is not only that they're like white American citizens, supposedly the very people we're supposed to be protecting from savagery. You know, not only are they white Americans, but they have been turned into savages through nuclear weapons testing, which was, of course, supposedly meant to protect those very people from the savage Axis powers or later as uh, nuclear proliferation revved up the savage communists. I guess we, uh, you know, realize that the threat of savagery was so pervasive that just as a failsafe, we would need the technology to exterminate all of humanity. We were at a such a point of civilizational progress that we needed to develop the technology that could protect or exterminate everyone on earth at any moment based on how civilized or savage they were determined to be. Uh, you know, I think it says something about civilization that the more it spreads somehow, the more savages keep showing up. So, you know, the world of the, of the nuclear bomb then is, uh, you know, something of a terminus for the ethos of the Western and the myth of regeneration through violence. You know, now the entire world is a frontier. And every human being is liable to be recognized as a savage, you know, a threat to civilization and therefore fit for extermination. And, you know, to this point, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, 
who is kind of a dorky guy like Doug in the movie, is uh, also something of a Western outlaw hero. Uh, you know, and that's hopefully something that's addressed in Christopher Nolan's upcoming movie. And uh, you know, just to just to wrap it up on a personal note, uh, when I was a kid, I was very anachronistically afraid of nuclear war because I was an obsessive fan of Terminator Two. I was like so horrified by the scene where Sarah Connor has that nightmare of a nuke going off and she's like gripping the chain like fence and gets turned into a skeleton. Uh, that was so scary to me. I would normally fast forward it. Um, and, you know, I felt like it was kind of weird to be worried about nuclear war at that time. Like as a fear, nuclear war was kind of in abeyance in the late 90s and early 2000s. It was like a like a post-war relic, you know, like some silly Cold War paranoia. Uh, and I think mostly that's just because it became unfashionable in movies and TV, uh, with the exception of like the sum of all fears with Ben Affleck. But, you know, nuclear war is uh, is trending again. And I often think that if we all die in nuclear war in like, let's say the next like 50 years, then there is only about, you know, 100, 120 years time between the invention of the nuclear bomb and the total extinction of humanity. And from a historical perspective, 100 years is just a blink of an eye. And, you know, from that perspective, it would seem that humanity had uh, annihilated itself basically immediately the second they created the bomb. Um, you know, but at least we will have gotten rid of all the savages.